All right, welcome back to Bush School Uncorked. We're doing um, some things a little different tonight, Greg. Indeed we are. Why don't you explain to our listeners, Justin, how, this, how, how we are doing things different? Yeah, so we've shifted to Zoom, uh, but that's not the new part. We've had a couple of, our last three episodes would have been done by Zoom, but we're trying out a new live format. We uh, sadly cannot gather in historic downtown Bryan at Downtown Uncorked, and uh, we miss our friends there. Uh, but we did want to give you an opportunity to join us for our conversations. So we're trying out a Zoom format. Um, we have some audience here with us. Uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, I'm told, can, can fit in a Zoom room at one time, Greg. <laughs> and maintain uh, appropriate social distancing. Yeah, and maintain appropriate social distancing. So we've asked the audience to uh, keep their microphones muted and their cameras turned off. And uh, we're going to run this like a normal Bush School Uncorked episode, uh, but the, the new piece is one, we're live on Zoom, uh, which is an experiment for us. We might eventually shift over doing it on Facebook and as well, if this is successful, but we'll take questions and commentary throughout, and uh, we'll throw that to Faith. And Faith, actually, we didn't say this before, but if a question comes in and Greg and I are missing it, you should just interrupt us. I'm just gonna go ahead and give you that ability to interrupt us with questions. Again, if you're just joining, make sure your, uh, your camera is turned off. Thank you. So um, we're doing our Zoom recording. Looking forward to having a conversation with Greg. The last couple times, Greg, we've had guests. We actually haven't called up since at the very beginning of when I started to realize that uh, COVID-19 might be something we were gonna be dealing with for a while. I think it was before spring break. And yeah, it was the very beginning of spring break. So I was down in Brownsville, um, Texas, working on some, some border uh, research uh, with our guest, uh, Christine Blackburn, from uh, last week. She had taken some students down there. And then I started kind of tuning back in to some of the news, and um, it seemed like it was starting to spread here and that we were going to have to start engaging in some social distancing measures. That feels like years ago now. Yeah, it's still March, and, and it was really during spring break that I think the university started to take this more seriously, and, and I think people in the Brazos Valley started to take it more seriously. The university took the lead on this, but I, I was, uh, we were supposed to have guests down over spring break. I was gonna be here anyway, but I was in, I was in meetings, I think almost every day uh, during spring break as we tried to to get ready for the switch over to teaching through Zoom, teaching at distance, uh, which I think has gone pretty well. Uh, I, I, there have been some issues, but, but the, te the technology has worked. Very few complaints, uh, very few technical glitches, I think. And, and so while it's, uh, it's not my favorite way to teach, uh, I think it's working and we can get through this semester, get people graduated in the school. And, uh, and, and then hope that by the fall, we're ready to go back to face-to-face. -to -face. Yeah, Texas A&M, I think, um, with a couple of other uh, leading universities at the time, acted fairly quickly um, to, to, send, to, to move classes online, to give students a week and faculty a week to adjust and try to get us situated uh, into this, uh, this transition, which for Texas A&M has meant, in general, synchronous uh, you know, at the same time, classes on Zoom, which um, I agree, I think has gone really well. We've had great support at our extended ed office at the Bush School um, to help make that transition, particularly at the Bush School. Um, the Zoom software has worked uh, fantastic. And I, 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 one of the things I've taken away is that our students adapt even much quicker than, than we do. They've had, no, they've had no problems at all, like doing breakout rooms, discussions, uh, adapting to the tools. Um, it's even starting to make uh, this uh, millennial feel like an old timer. You can imagine how it makes me feel. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I, I can imagine. I'm, really I'm wondering if you're still, really the you still volunteering to, um, you know, go out on the front lines for me, Greg? So, no, we'll let, we'll let Lieutenant Governor Patrick take care of that. But, but the, only, the only innovation that I've really liked out of all of this is, is the... Uh, the Zoom cocktail hour. Uh, yeah. And so I, I've been able to, you know, I had a, I had a, I, I even organized to show how, how on top of the technology, 
I organized a Zoom cocktail hour with my siblings on Sunday. So that and they're they're spread over. So it was nice. One in New York City, uh, which is of course the epicenter. But, yeah. But we had a very nice time. Yeah, we've I've gotten to do some of that as well, and I think I mentioned to you before some of my. Uh, Happy hour friends were are kind enough to join us for tonight, and I think they uh, they will probably be asking some questions at some point. So uh, I uh, won't be having drinks during, but maybe afterwards I might have one or two again with my cocktail buddies. So I I should report to to the the Bush School students and 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 faculty and colleagues and and staff who are and alums who might be on that there is a silver lining to this dark cloud of not being able to have face to face classes. And we have a lot of work to do in the Bush School in terms of, of renovation and, and uh, kind of creating new spaces on both the first and the second floor because we've taken over the second floor. And with everybody out of the building, uh, the, the, uh, the, the construction crews have been able to work uh, much quicker. And so uh, we, we have our fingers crossed that uh, not only will everything be ready in uh, August when school starts again for the fall semester, but we might be able to have the construction done uh, much quicker than we originally planned. And, and that would be a real good, uh, a, a, a positive out of this, uh, I think, generally negative turn of events. I'm glad they're able to continue to make, uh, make some progress. You know, uh, my economics friends at A&M remain unhappy with me um, that we have invaded the second floor. Well, you know. <laughs> They should consider their own utilities and we'll consider. <laughs> all right. So, um, hey, Faith, there you are. You got something for us? Yes, we have questions already. Okay. Well, let's start with some questions. All right. Uh, Dr. Goss, you're a bit of a celebrity because this first one is directed to you. Um, could you give us your thoughts? And if I butcher this pronunciation, I'm sorry. Uh, can you give us your thoughts? On the Houthis shooting missiles over Riyadh, uh, I guess the first ones were happening since 2018. Can you give us some insight on that? Well, we're getting right into it, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> let's dive right in. So give us the background of the question, Greg, and uh, tell us your, your thoughts. Sure. The, the civil war in Yemen, one of the great humanitarian disasters of the modern age, uh, even before the coronavirus, which... I'm sure is, is spreading in Yemen as well, uh, with no medical infrastructure to take care of people down there. Uh, that, that, that civil war has been going on to, since uh, 2015, when the Houthis, uh, uh, this, this um, how to phrase them, how, uh, they are a, a political group uh, based on a, a religious sect in Yemen, the Zaydi Shi'i sect. Uh, so they are Shi'is, but not Shi'is like the Iranians, but the Iranians are supporting them. They looked like they were going to take over the country, and the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates intervened to try to prevent that. And, and since then, it's been civil war. Uh, the fighting is fractionated. There's all sorts of groups. The Emiratis have left. The Saudis are still bombing. Uh, the Emiratis and the Saudis are now uh, supporting separate groups. Uh, why, why would the Houthis uh, uh, launch missiles against Riyadh now? Well, of course, they claim to have launched missiles in September that hit the Saudi oil uh, facilities that closed those facilities down for a while. Uh, that's probably not true. Those probably came from Iran or southern Iran. But uh, there's a peace initiative on through the UN to try to get a ceasefire. This could be an effort by uh, groups within the Houthis who don't want to have a ceasefire because in the last few weeks, the Houthis have made some gains on the ground. Uh, and so that it, it could be that. Uh, but I think that, that things are very much in flux in, in, in Yemen. So I, I would actually think that we should wait to see if the diplomacy works and then to see if the Houthi leadership can exert some centralized control on that. But it's, uh, you know, just like the coronavirus here, too early to tell where we're going to end up on the, on the, on the scene in Yemen. Thanks for that first question. Um, I have nothing to add. Um, not, I, you haven't been studying the Houthis? I, not in the same level of detail, I must say. I, I have been studying unemployment insurance, which uh, 
So we will get there. And it's, uh, you know, it's not the best state of affairs for unemployment insurance this past week. Faith, I see you back down there. All right, bring us our question too. I like this approach. All right, this is directed towards both of you. Uh, what long-term implications do you believe this ongoing pandemic will have on the business of higher education? Ooh, on the business of higher education. Yeah, That's okay. a really good question. Um, so, woo, Greg, you're the uh, institutionalist. I, I'll, I'll say that I think one of the things that we are going to learn in a, kind of a, a broad experimental fashion is how useful are uh, remote digital learning tools employed in mass. And I have uh, been a fan of them. I've been using Google Classroom, um, doing a lot of online teaching. I already I was already working uh, with Zoom. So I think that um, we're going to see if if this can be an effective way of delivering education, um, which will have some impacts. I could have some impacts on what revenue models. We might uh, we might use moving forward. So that's one that uh, one that I can think of. It might highlight the importance or not importance of of um, other activities that the university engages in. Um, could shed some light on that. Um, but the other piece of it is going to be kind of the role that large company large tech companies were already playing in helping deliver um, deliver education. So there's already some questions about what it means for Google to to play such a large role in storage and mail and communication. There's a thing coming out of the New York district attorney's office today or yesterday looking into Zoom's privacy practices. Um, so um, there's gonna be some questions about what does it mean that a professor can be recorded at any time in the classroom? That's gonna have some impacts, but that's about the only intuition I have. Uh, the other piece is going to be that states are going to take a huge, a huge hit. And if you're talking about public state edu uh, education, like where I went at University of Georgia or Texas A&M, we're going to have some real um, budget concerns because the states are really likely to take a big hit. Greg. Yeah, by when you called me the institutionalist, I assume that that meant that I'm old. Uh, <laughs> it meant that you're a department head and you sit in on these meetings. Yeah, how nice. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I I'm glad you're still going to work and that you're doing your public service. By uh, but don't go to the office. No joke. I have not been to the office in in a week and a half, uh, and I, I, I'm going to stay out, uh, which we all should do. Shelter in place. That's the order in Brazos County. Uh, you're saving lives. Uh, I think that, so you're absolutely right about state budgets. Uh, I, I think Congress is going to have to come back on that. You know, if we're, if we're going $2 trillion more into debt, we might as well go $3 trillion into debt and, and help bail out states. That might help the budget of public education going forward. One can only hope. But yeah, I mean, We'll, we'll get into this further on, but you know, 2020 is going to be a horrible economic year. And that means state tax uh, receipts are going to be way down. Uh, in terms of delivery, you know, we've always thought of quote unquote online courses as being asynchronous. And you know, Justin, because you've been teaching them. I, I don't teach them, uh, I'm too old, but the, the success, well, we'll see. If, if, if the experiment with Zoom is, is just a success, there might be efforts to think about delivering uh, online education, education at distance, synchronously, rather than asynchronously. The asynchronous element of it was supposed to give people flexibility uh, in terms of when they did their work, when they engaged with the course. And that made a lot of sense. But there might be a market for synchronous because at least there's a little bit more of the human contact. In it. Uh, that'll be interesting. I think that it's too early to judge on how it's going to affect, quote unquote, campus life. Uh, we're in the first flush of this. I think people are going to get really tired of it after a while. 
Uh, I think by the end of this semester, it, it, it's going to be, uh, people are going to, students are going to be tired of it. We're going to be tired of it. And, and I think students will miss the social element. And I, just, I don't just mean going to Northgate and going to the bars. Uh, I mean the social element of engaging with people over, over, over lunch, over dinner, in the dorms. You know, it's, it's a truism to say, you know, most of your learning is uh, outside, the, outside the classroom. At least some of it is. Even as a faculty member, I'm willing to grant that. Uh, and and I, I don't think that this technology is going to replace it. So we'll see. Faith, it's back. Yeah, kind of bouncing off of that previous question, uh, do you see any ways that the pandemic can particularly affect the Bush School specifically, and how so do you see that? Well, it's... Um hard to know so the things that we were saying generally about universities will apply I would think to the Bush School um, which is you would imagine that if there's uh, tighter budgets for the university there's going to be tighter budgets for the Bush School some of the uh, different types of sources that um, that help support our functions from year to year there will probably be, be less of on some some things that maybe Greg can uh, chat some about um, I think um, it does, it does, we will be running the same experiment to these synchronous classes work. And so for example, you might imagine a world in which it's harder to get international students to, to the US uh, over the next year or two in particular. Um, and so one thing that we might be thinking about is, can we use these online tools to incorporate those students even if we start going back to in-person um, uh, here domestically? Um, but I think there's going to be, you know, there's, there's a, a recession in coming. Um, we'll talk about some of the estimates of what this could mean for the economy this year and what we're already seeing for unemployment, but this is really going to, to hit state budgets. And so that, 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 that affects us. Now, the, the field and, and graduate school is kind of like, um, uh, like they say about alcohol, it's it's also good in bad times in general. So people, when the economy's bad, they go to grad school because there's not clear economic opportunities. So I would imagine that we see uh, potentially an uptick in applications. People are also hearing a lot about in the in the news and and general popular culture about public health and epidemiology and uh, uh, coordination and collaboration and things that might have them thinking about public service or public issues more than they were before. So I think it might uh, draw more attention to us. The other thing is we're doing this, right? Greg and I have been having the podcast in person. This allows people from all over to come hang out with us and ask questions. This is already as many questions as we've ever gotten in person. Um, and so, you know, we get to try out some new types of things. Uh, we're, some of us are thinking about ideas like uh, virtual collaborations, virtual centers, um, to, uh, to kind of build on this time when we're going to be socially distanced from one another. So yeah, I, those are, uh, those are a few of the impacts if I had to guess. Greg? Yeah. I, I don't want to talk about budgets because we haven't, we just have gotten no information about that, uh, from, from, uh, central administration at the university. So it would just be purely speculative. Uh, the state of Texas, one can criticize it on many levels, but uh, extremely supportive of the two flagship universities, uh, our, our friends across the prairie in Austin and us. And, and so uh, we've ridden out, Texas A&M has ridden out past problems, uh, fiscal problems with the state. Uh, there will be issues, but I, I, I can't see we, 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 we might be flatlined for a while, you know, no new hires, no raises, that kind of thing. But I, I don't see kind of the existing uh, educational provision, the existing number of courses cut down. I, 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 think, I, 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 I think that the biggest impact on the Bush School in the short term will probably be our friends in the Office of Extended Education as they sift through what 
what this Zoom experiment has meant and does it mean uh, that we can offer other kinds of courses, synchronous courses at distance? Is there a, is there a market for that? Is there, uh, are there people interested? I, I think that that might be at the Bush School our, our biggest impact, the biggest impact. All right. So, um, looks like maybe there's a, oh, there she is. Uh, uh, what we got, Faith? I'm, I'm loving this. I like the questions. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Go Faith. Maybe the star of the show again. There's this one. Uh, surprise, surprise. <sighs> so, uh, it seems as though most of the coverage of the pandemic has been focused on China and other developed countries. Occasionally, we see some information coming out from the Middle East, but it doesn't appear to be a large focus point for the media. Uh, do you have any thoughts to speak about this in your opinion, and what would they be? So Iran has been a, a, one of the earliest epicenters of the, uh, of the, of the virus, and the Iranians did a, a really a terrible job of, uh, of dealing with it at the, at the top. I mean, like, like many governments, like the Chinese government, they, they kind of wished it didn't exist. Like our government, uh, wish that didn't exist and kind of ignored it. But I think that, that the Iranians, the, the, maybe the most interesting thing about the Iranian case is that so many people in the top levels of leadership have tested positive and, and, and at least one Iranian vice president has died from coronavirus. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, the combination of, of coronavirus, uh, the the inept way the Iranian government has dealt with coronavirus and the general economic downturn with the collapse of oil prices, although Iran has suffered from that before because it was under, under sanctions and hasn't been able to sell that much oil. You know, what does that mean for the Iranian regime? I think it'll be very interesting to watch. I'm not of the school that says the Iranian regime is about to go, but I do think that it, it, uh, it is, uh, dealing with a, a number of crises uh, across the board that it hasn't had to deal with before. So one thing I would uh, just add from a developing country's perspective, uh, India's Modi uh, offered a complete lockdown on 1.3 billion people. Um, that'll be kind of a, a very large scale social experiment and to see if that's able to keep the spread from uh, keep a spread from a, a place like India. I think the other thing uh, that's worth noting um, in the same way that in some ways this applies um, to rural areas or less developed areas, even within uh, also in cities, not just rural areas, but less developed areas in the, in the U S I mean, less developed countries are going to run into hospital capacity issues sooner. There's less capacity in general, you would think. And the other piece of it is that the, the amount of testing in the same way that it's hard to get testing done in the U.S., getting testing to get an accurate count of what's going on in, uh, in less developed countries, both of those challenges, I would uh, imagine, would be exacerbated. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, hospital capacity issues aren't limited to the third world. I mean, they aren't limited to Asia and Africa and South America. New York City is uh, overwhelmed in terms of hospital capacity right now. Uh, yeah. So even even the most uh, even the richest uh, countries in the world with the you know the, the 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 best infrastructure in the world are getting overwhelmed with this. And Central Park is setting up field hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. No. That's I. That's definitely true. I mean, uh, exacerbated on top of what's already going to overwhelm our healthcare systems in the, in the U S by all, I can't, I mean, you see stuff coming out of New York, stuff coming out of Miami and Washington. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things we were talking about beforehand is that, you know, there's some indication, uh, based on the reported numbers that the exponential growth isn't increasing in its ex in its exponent. Whereas it was maybe growing at 25% new cases a day. It's more like 16, uh, on the previous day. And, um, but, and we need to do kind of what we can, I think, to, to flatten that curve as kind of people have been talking about by social distancing and, and by staying home. But, you know, for, for New York and for other places where we've kind of, in the U.S., where we've really delayed the social distancing and then didn't do it in a, 
kind of a comprehensive way, even as the exponential growth starts to slow from an exponent standpoint, you're still talking about thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of new cases for a long time. I mean, the U.S. is going to have over 20,000 cases today, over 550 deaths. There was over, um, I think, 19,000 cases yesterday, over 19 the day before that. So, you know, the growth rate uh, in terms of per day new cases isn't jumping up like it was uh, in the beginning. However, you're still talking about 20,000 new plus new cases uh, a day, and some percentage of those are going to be critical, and we only have so much, you know, uh, equipment for physicians, uh, only so many surgical masks, only so many ventilators. Um, so, yeah, even in the developed world, um, it seems like in the U.S., we're at this point, we're likely to lead to, to kind of uh, get close to the capacity or most likely surpass the capacity of our, high, of our uh, hospitals to deal with intensive care patients. And, and we're so big a country that we're, you know, different parts of the country are hitting this different times, right? Washington State and New York City, the New York City, the metropolitan area, you know, early. Uh, but we're starting to see, uh, you know, serious increases in the number of cases in other parts of the country. Louisiana has seen uh, big increases. Uh, one reads that Detroit is seeing big increases. This is going to roll through the country at different times and at different rates. And, and in that sense, it, it probably makes sense for, for us, to, uh, in terms of the United States, to address this as not, not a one-size-fits-all, right? The places where this is rolled through first might be the first ones who can, who can ratchet back some of the social distancing requirements. But for those of us who are on the front end of it, like here in Texas, uh, you know, it, pro- it probably makes sense for us to maintain social distancing longer than some of these places that we think of as having it worse than us. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely further along. The, the, the issue is going to be, too, because we don't have real, uh, real I mean, we have borders, but we don't have kind of transportation borders in the U.S. Right. So I think this is going to be a real challenge for collaborating across states because, to your point, different states are going to peak at different times. Um, but you know, travel across the U.S. states in general has been pretty unfettered. You can just kind of go. Now, there are some moves to kind of limit some of this, as we've heard uh, in the news recently. But this is going to be a real challenge, I think, for a while different strategies might be better targeted different states and different states are going to be recovering at different times. It's going to be really, we're going to be really careful about uh, about going back to normal or, or kind of releasing some of these guidelines um, to, to stay in shelter and to not be out and about because it's not like we have border checks, at least not yet really in any meaningful way in the U S. And I think that's going to be re- a, a real challenge as we start, li- uh, as the exponential growth starts to, to decrease even, you know, some amount of time from now. Right. Faith, I see you. I see your back. Faith, what do you got? All right. So kind of staying on the same topic of states that you just mentioned, uh, do you guys see the COVID-19 pandemic driving a new wave of public leaders? So, for instance, non-politicians like Donald Trump or younger governors. Um, do you see them reevaluating the ways in which federal, state, and local governments interact with one another? Well, I, I hope so. Um, you know, we're at the School of Public Service. I hope that pe- part of people's takeaway from this is that there's not only a role for democratically elected politicians, um, but they need to be informed and society needs to be informed in general by uh, expert knowledge base. I mean, I, you know, I got a PhD, teach, believe in academics. That's why I kind of devote life, my life to education and research in these areas. I hope that one of the takeaways is the importance of expertise, is the importance of collaboration and the, uh, the importance of coordination across local, state, and federal, and uh, you know, broad, consistent uh, guidance all the way down, and that this kind of reminds people that uh, expertise matters, and that serving in ways outside of just traditional um, uh, political elected office matters. Um, although you know, 
that also matters so much right now as well, that we have people within legislative and executive branches that are quality leaders, that are listening to experts, um, and that, you know, um, are trying to represent their, 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 their districts and listen, again, listen to best evidence. So I hope um, a disaster maybe should point people in that direction. Um, but, you know, the wars of information and misinformation are, are very real right now in our society. And so I'm not sure if that will be the takeaway. So I think the issue of federalism has been, you know, uh, part of our national dialogue since, uh, since the 19th century, right? Since the 18th century even. Uh, and, and whenever there's a crisis like this, there's, a, I, I think, a, an enormous uh, sense that the center has to lead. Uh, governors are looking for the federal government to act as, uh, as, as the organizer of, of these efforts to deal with the, with the virus. But, there, but all of these things are going to be implemented through states. And so the balance, the, fe- the, ba- the balance between states and the federal government is, is constantly being renegotiated. And, and I think that, you know, the 20th century has been basically, a, a con- you know, the concentration of power from states to the federal government. I don't think that we're going to see a reversal of that, but I think that the importance of state government for the, the provision of these kinds of services that people need in these kinds of crisis is, is, uh, is going to, I hope, be one of the takeaways here. Uh, uh, and so I think we're going to see the federal state relationship reexamined, maybe not recentered or redistributed in terms of the power, but, but the importance of the states in the provision of services, I think, is going uh, to be uh, a major topic. And it will be uh, uh, even more so because of, of the points Justin made about budget crises that the states are all going to face. Now, if you have to go to the federal government to, to get money to make up for the state budget shortfalls, then that you know, puts more power back in the federal government. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, expertise. Public health. Uh, we've tended to, ign- I don't want to say ignore public health, but uh, every presidential administration, right, in the last three has faced a, a public health crisis of one sort or another, a disaster preparedness crisis or a public health crisis. And, and they've tended to put together a, 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 a decision-making, kind of a, a functional group within the White House through the National Security Council or through other mechanisms to try to coordinate national and international responses to pandemics, to natural disasters. Uh, and then the next administration comes in and says, oh, we don't need that. Uh, now, of course, the Trump administration did that, but so did the Obama administration, right? Disbanded uh, the, 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 the group within the National Security Council that the, the Bush administration had, uh, George W. Bush. And so I'm hoping that uh, one of the lessons to come out of this is that uh, we have to sustain not only the infrastructure of our public health, we should never run out of masks, we should never run out of ventilators, Right, uh, just-in-time provision of health care, the, go- the, the goods needed to provide health care is not a rational long-term strategy. Just-in-time provision of, of, you know, widgets for making things in factories, yeah, great. We can deal without the widgets for a while. But we shouldn't have just-in-time uh, inventory policies on things that when, when you know, the flag goes up and the crisis hits, we can't get. Uh, I think, I think in the, you know, so public health has to be a much, we have, to, we have to nurture public health infrastructure even in times when we don't need it. Because when we need it, boy, do we need it. And I think that, uh, and I'll shut up about this, but. <laughs> the, You're not long-winded, Greg. You're not long-winded. Not much. Uh, <laughs> the. We have to have a 9-11 style commission after this is done 
to go through and to tell us, well, why were we unprepared? What were the key decision points where we made wrong decisions and right decisions? What are the lessons we can learn? You know, one, one can argue that the 9-11 Commission, you know, the lessons learned from the 9-11 Commission added layers of bureaucracy that maybe we don't need, maybe we do. But we need some kind of, 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 of forensic on what we did wrong and what we did right in this. And, and I'm hoping that we can have a serious effort on the level of the 9-11 Commission, where agree with it or, or disagree with some of its recommendations, it was a serious effort to go through. I, I still assign chapters of the 9-11 Commission in my Middle East classes. In fact, my class on Thursdays, having to read chapters of the 9-11 Commission report, it was very good. Thanks, Greg. Faith, you're back. And back again. All right, so next question is, what is the U.S. doing uh, on a national security side to protect itself while attention is diverted on the coronavirus? And do you think that we're engaged as a world leader in combating COVID-19 and how? Oh, goodness. Go ahead, Greg. You want to take the first swing? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, jury's still out, but, but we haven't seen high profile efforts to coordinate internationally on this. Uh, and I think that that is very much a reflection of President Trump's ideas of how one should engage with the world. You know, you engage America first, you're distrustful of, of, uh, of other parties, you're distrustful of international organizations. I think that that's uh, not a good way to approach this, frankly. But we've, we've seen the breakdown of, of some amount of comedy in the European Union where you know, the whole idea was open borders and now borders are being closed. Understandable, but uh, you know, when, when push comes to shove, you take care of your own country. Uh, I still think that, that uh, we could have coordinated better uh, what statistics we're getting about foreign countries are coming to some extent through their obligations to report to international bodies. On, on public health issues in their own country. Uh, the criticism of the Chinese is, is that they, they, it's not so much that they're not telling the truth to their own people, that's their own business. They don't tell the truth to their own people about all sorts of things. But that they have signed on to international obligations to report on health issues uh, to the world, to the World Health Organization specifically. Uh, and, and so, I think that we could have, uh, the United States could have played a stronger role through these organizations to put pressure on countries like China and Iran to report correctly. Uh, and so I, I think that that's where uh, one of the places that I would differ with the, the Trump administration on international, on, on, on how we've engaged internationally in, in response to the crisis. Justin? Yeah. Well, I was thinking and trying to think about some of the national security component um, to see how that fits in with things I have been uh, I have been reading. I mean, I, and I don't I don't think I have a good I don't think I have a good response. Um, the thing that I would echo is that uh, it seems like there there it would have been nice if institutions like you know the G seven and others could have had a more coordinated response. And in the past, the U.S. has played much more of a leadership role in some of the international institutions in uh, kind of leading the dialogue and being a leader in those, in those forums to encourage um, global cooperation. And uh, as, as Greg mentioned, the, President Trump takes a different view of those institutions and a different uh, view of what coordination and collaboration is and uh, is much more kind of a, a America first, go at it kind of alone, do what we, what we want, as opposed to coordinating with allies and putting pressure on, on, on countries like China, as Greg mentioned, to, um, to behave responsibly internationally and to report their numbers accurately and to let the World Health Organization in to see what's going on. All these things that we, we could be leaders on uh, and traditionally have, and so at this particular time, there's, you know, uh, a, a noteworthy lack of leadership from the U.S. in guiding the in guiding the international response. Faith, you're back. 
All right, Dr. Bullock, you mentioned earlier the problem of misinformation in our society. So do you and Dr. Goss believe that the pandemic will ameliorate or exacerbate the problems of the post-truth culture we are living in? And do you envision that effect being universal or will it vary by, will it vary by location? Yeah, so um, I don't know is the short answer um, for sure. Um, the, uh, my, 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 Greg's laughing at me. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, it's the beginning of wisdom to say what you know about. Yeah, just, I'm not so sure. Um, but the, you know, the rubber will meet the road on some of this when people, people know die, right? Like on some levels, at least the misinformation about coronavirus, as the deaths become more widespread, there will be some type of general reckoning with that, um, I think. However, my own, uh, my own kind of um, uh, intake of, of kind of information, things floating around on social media, is that it, it, it seems unlikely that it will in any meaningful way break down the information silos that we've created, both from news media sources and from algorithms that target things to us and the way in which we, we live. We're actually gonna be more distant from one another for a while, not in terms of m people moving near people they, they uh, wanna be around, but your network is gonna get reinforced because you're already gonna be using the same tools and talking to the same people um, as part of some of the social distancing. Um, so I'm not super optimistic, uh, I'm not particularly optimistic that the pandemic is what breaks is like is what wins the war on misinformation um it seems like it will uh it will it will reveal some facts to people a little too late um and there'll be some really serious consequences for that but my kind of sense of the of the narrative that i can pick up on uh from reading and from from social media is that these narratives are already being co-opted by the same types of information flows and information channels as they as they have been um so i i don't really anticipate that this will win the war on on misinformation and in some ways it seems to be intensifying when it can intensify around the issue of death it feels like it's pretty uh pretty entrenched um so yeah that's my take greg so the internet's an open sewer i mean we've known that forever uh but it's also our our savior in 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 this period, right? We couldn't have this chat. We couldn't teach our classes through Zoom. We couldn't keep up with our friends through virtual happy hours, right? We, we so, I mean, like every technology, it, it can be used for good or for evil, as they say in the, in the, in the superhero movies. Uh, I, so I, you know, it's technology isn't gonna, isn't creating a post, truth culture and it's not going to defeat a post-truth culture uh i mean the, the, what's going to what's going to do that is our own leadership and our own followership uh, i'm pessimistic we're, we're, we're going to have an election campaign where truth is going to take a beating uh, I, I just i think that that's inevitable we saw this recently right yeah and, and so i i, I I'm not, I'm not optimistic about short-term short -term fixes to the amount of untruth that filters through uh, the social media world. But I think that the only way we can combat that is by educating ourselves about the, about the good sources, not the bad sources, the reliable sources, not the suspect sources. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, Here's a, it's a little it's a little liberal uh, Pollyanna, but you know John Stuart Mill, you know more debate rather than less. And I think we had we had a good example of that in the last couple of weeks. Um, so there was a there was a, a a prominent argument, including from the president, that the cure can't be worse than the disease. And this notion that we had to we had to reopen the economy, we had to get back to work. That we all had to be back uh, back at our jobs by Easter, 
and that you know the, the consequences uh, for for the economy would be would be a lot worse than the consequences of public health if we did. Uh, Governor Lieutenant Governor Patrick here in Texas, probably the most uh, bald-faced statement of that of that idea, right? And and for a good ten days, we had a national debate about that question. And I think that the 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 result of that debate was the White House saying, "Forget about opening up by 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 Easter. We've we've got to we've got to extend the social dis distancing regs through April." And and I think that that was the product of 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 good ideas driving bad ideas out. Doesn't always happen, but I think it was a good example of that. Yeah, um, one of the things actually I'm. Um, teaching a decision-making class this semester. And one of the things we've been, we were talking about today before our podcast was uh, a contrast between idea labs where you have ideas compete, you search for truth and you try to get at better solutions versus echo chambers where all new evidence is shut down and you just double down on tribalism and zealots and um, don't allow for any new debate and just kind of by, you know, uh, and by one person's opinion, just kind of push it through and then force, you know, and try to encourage everyone else to agree. And there is just all sorts of evidence, I think, that debate and free speech and having these discussions out open in public and trying to figure out what the best ideas are is so much better than name calling and, uh, you know, misrepresentation of arguments and, um, you know, these echo chambers where everyone's just encouraged to agree and not question. Um, so it's good to see that kind of play out in real time. Hey, Faith, we're not out of questions yet. This is pretty crazy. I think this is probably going to have to be our last one, though. Uh, All right, let's hear it. Running on time, but dinner, dinner awaits. <laughs> All right, so last question: um, Have Bush School professors been discussing the opportunity this pandemic provides researchers to study emergency preparedness plans? and the success and failures of the response of governments, corporations, and nonprofits? Yes, yes is the answer. Um, I was on a call uh, on Friday, and as part of a proposal that we've been working on, we were incorporating some thoughts about, uh, we were already looking at disaster response and disaster response and technology and how that impacts uh, first responders. And so, this has led to conversations about the role pandemics would play in that. We've also been in, uh, I was also in another conversation where we were talking about how might we use things like um, autonomous vehicles um, as, it, as technology improved to deliver things like tests and test kits um, with simple instructions from kind of a remote uh, tablet. So there are, uh, there are certainly conversations going on about um, how to improve emergency preparedness and disaster response as a consequence of COVID. It's already reaching kind of the research. And, you know, just as another example, it's, it's kind of transformed our show, for example, for the last month. There's a lot more dialogue around it, a lot more conversations. People are kind of having more back and forths about how should we have been prepared and what types of uh, tools should we use uh, socially and what does this mean for concerns about authoritarianism and privacy and the labor market. And um, so, yeah, I, I've personally been uh, a part of a number of these conversations that people are, are, are having already. Greg? That's, I think that's great. And uh, that's <laughs> what we should be doing with public affairs, right? Me, I've just been in Zoom meetings trying to figure out how Zoom meetings can be used to do classes. And I, I've, I, I have to say, my, my research life, such as it is as an administrator, has suffered even more during the crisis. So I, I, I foolishly brought two books home with me when I said, okay, I'm not going to the office anymore. But I'm going to be home, so maybe I'll have time to read these books. They have not been. Uh, so uh, Lisa Brown should know that I volunteered to provide you with any extra Zoom help that you needed. Well, uh, thank you uh, so much. Your, your help, your help is greatly appreciated, uh, but uh, not necessary. Thanks very much. <laughs>
figured it out. I feel like that's after my comments last time. Me being not necessary is probably the best uh, follow up. Well, <laughs> I, I think I think I think you're necessary if we're going to keep the podcast going because well, that's true. talking might might. I might enjoy that because I've never lost the love of the sound of my own voice. <laughs> I've do, probably been accused of the same thing. I do think a little back and forth helps the show. Yeah, I agree. So I think we will, in the interest of time, and uh, those of you that will be watching the video or um, uh, podcast recording, um, we'll go ahead and, and stop the questions um, for now. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. Greg and I had some, uh, some things we were going to talk about. The, stimulus package. Uh, we're going to talk about more about oil prices, unemployment insurance. Um, so we still have some topics for the next conversation. Um, and our plan for now, uh, given our new world, is to do these weekly. Sometimes we'll have guests. Sometimes we won't have guests. Uh, our intention will be to take questions, uh, see how the Bush community is doing, uh, kind of out there social distancing, um, and, uh, but for the time being, we'll do this at this link. So if you use this link tonight, we'll, uh, we'll have another Facebook event. We'll make it available to you. The podcast will come out on our Bush school and court feed. The video will be on our Facebook page. Um, and maybe in a couple of other places as well. Um, and I think that's all I have, Greg. Don't touch your face. Oh man. I know. I caught myself doing it a couple times tonight. I'm just hopeless. I'm carrying the that's why I'm messing with and just to keep my hand away from that. Uh, I know that. I, I know. I'm at least not going out much. So and now you're you're touching your face as you I say am this. again. Just in in the conversation about it, I have no I have no chance. Yeah. So thanks everyone. It was uh, a lot of fun. If uh, a couple of you want to hang around for a minute, I'm happy to have uh, some additional conversations. But I think that will do it for our uh, our episode. Thanks, Greg. Always a lot of fun, man. Great fun. See you next week. Thanks, everybody.